Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Jasmine, an English and creative writing student here at Macquarie University in my final semester of undergrad. And I'm delighted to be a part of this series on Indigenous fiction that From the Lighthouse is conducting this year. I'm also lucky enough to be joined today by the lovely Indigenous artist and scholar, Dylan Barnes. Hi, Dylan. Hello, Jasmine. Thank you for having me here. I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you for being here. Now, Dylan, would you please do us the absolute honour of telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Dylan Barnes. I'm a proud Wiradjuri person, uh, born and raised on Dark and Jung land on the Central Coast near Wiwi. Uh, but I currently live on Darug land in Chatswoods. Uh, I recently graduated from Macquarie University in a Bachelor of Arts majoring in Indigenous Studies and Gender Studies. And I'm also an Aboriginal artist and academic, um, planning on starting my Masters of Research in Indigenous Queer Studies next year at Macquarie. Yeah. What an introduction. Thank you for that, Dylan. So before we begin, I would like to acknowledge and honour the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia as the nation's first people as well as pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this podcast today, the Darkenjung people. And I'd like to acknowledge the Kamaragal uh, people of the Dark Nation, which is the land that I'm on today, and acknowledge all Indigenous people that would be listening to this podcast. So today we'll be talking about Indigenous fiction, more specifically Claire G. Coleman's Enclave. Now, I'm especially excited about this topic for three main reasons, which I will now tell you. The first one is that this book actually only very recently came out. Like I'm talking the end of June this year. So that's what, four months ago. Yeah, very recent. So just very exciting to see one of the first people talking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Secondly, there are so many English units at Macquarie and obviously in a single degree and one major, you can only do so many units. And one of the only English units I have not had the chance to take is the Australian fiction one, sadly, regrettably. So this has been great to sort of get into that and get really close with one text and learn a lot. And I'm going to be learning a lot from you, Dylan. Oh, 100%. I'm happy to hear that. And finally, there's just so much in this book. It covers so many topics and a lot that are very important to me and very important to you. So I'm very excited to discuss it with you. I will first introduce you to our protagonist. Okay, which is a 21-year-old woman named Christine. Okay, now what shocked me most about this book to start with is this book centers on Christine, but Christine isn't Indigenous. She's incredibly privileged non-Indigenous Australian woman. Okay, yep. She is attached to a trust fund provided by her parents until she has a comfortable job, which presumably will be with the company her father works for. So it will just be handed to her. Or until she is married. Okay, nepotism. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, this trust fund pays for her credit card and her own apartment. Oh. So she is ready. You know, she has everything. She's just graduated university with a degree in pure mathematics. Mm. I won't say what we think of that here. No, no, we have strong opinions on things that aren't the arts. Yes. So Christine is a very privileged woman. So she mm. lives, the place in which she lives is in Tasmania. Okay. The book is set in the near future. It's not specified when, but we can sort of work out that it's not too far away. So yep. the town she lives in, in Tasmania, is called Safe Town. Okay. okay. This that is a little bit on the nose. This is a gated community. It's encased in walls. There are walls surrounding it. You can't get in, you can't get out. There is complete camera surveillance. 
Oh. Every pole, every house, every house looks exactly the same, but every house has a camera attached. There are drones which constantly survey the area, and every time it passes a person, it takes a photo of their face so that they know oh, who's really? about. Also, the news heavily mm. monitored and has been infiltrated and only shows incorrect news. And this news is used to spread fear for what is beyond the walls of this safe town. Oh, is this nonfiction? Exactly. So it is speculative <laughs> fiction. Which, oh, yeah. Yeah, speculative fiction plays up on the things that are already existent in reality and speculates about what could happen in the near future. Hey, good to know. Yeah. Interesting. It is very interesting. So Christine's world is very highly fabricated and she doesn't really know much other than what's told to her. Now, Christine's very closed off. Yes, very closed from off the from real the real world. world. Yes. Now, she is constantly in her house because they can't actually leave their houses because of the climate. The heat is so drastic that they have to stay indoors in air conditioning. And if they go outside, it can only be for small amounts of time because of how hot it is. Okay. But climate change isn't real. Okay. True. Yep. There's no facts that say it is. None at all. We don't believe scientists. So because Christine can't leave her house, she needs people to be at her every beck and call because how else will she be able to do anything? Well, she has servants. These servants, of course, are people of colour and they are Indigenous Australians. Of course. Uh, yes. Uh, so this gated uh, community is misogynistic, racist, and homophobic. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. It's it's an enclave, which is the title of the book, an economic and socio-political enclave, which has been started by these wealthy people who are scared of people who are considered to be different. So they're believing in a homogenous society as a healthy one. And so they're trying oh, okay. to retain those traditional values of superiority and okay. conservatism. Yep. Okay, I'd say that. So we get a sense. The first is a very slow starting book, which doesn't mean knock it back because it does get very good, but it is very slow starting. The first 50 pages, which are set out in diary-like form, it's each chapter's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, goes through her days. Yep. And we don't know anything about her father. He's an absent figure. He's constantly at work, but Christine doesn't know what his job is. Interesting. Yes. But her mother, she's always home because she doesn't have a job because she just lives off the father's money. Okay. Honestly, power to her. Power to her. She also also has a severe alcohol problem, which she constantly pushes onto Christine, which Christine says that every time she takes a swig of alcohol, her mother is smiling at her like a target at a lamb, which is an everyday occurrence where she has, her mother has a group of friends over and they're drinking quite heavily. Who knows why? We find out later. And this is very much playing into she doesn't have a great relationship with her mother because of this. She doesn't have a great one with her father. This is a very cold household, a very cold upbringing. There's also a heavy focus from the very beginning on Western beauty standards. Okay, yeah. There is a heavy normalization of plastic surgery. Every time that Christine's mother's friends come over, she can't recognize them. Even if it's the same people who were there a few weeks before because every time they get a new surgery they look so drastically different okay she doesn't know their names instead she calls them by whatever artificial hair color they have at the time whether it be platinum blonde golden blonde redhead etc oh well, okay okay yep yeah there's even an anecdote where her and her mother are at the shopping center and they're shopping and they bump into a woman and the woman greets them and says it's me and the mother says who and the woman's like it's me 
And then after she hears that voice again, it triggers her memory and she realizes it's her friend. Ah, uh, okay. Which isn't okay. Oh, okay. It's a bit drastic. It's yeah. not exactly like our contemporary life, but there definitely mm-hmm. is more of this sort of beauty standard popping. Yes, yes. I feel like it's an exaggeration of what is already a reality. Yeah. yeah. 100%. So Christine isn't really realising many of these things until she starts noticing the servants around her all seem to have similar characteristics, which is that they are dark-featured. Okay. And they yeah. aren't like her or her family. And comes to notice... This one particular woman who is constantly making her coffee or making her sandwiches and is showing such warmth to her that her parents aren't. Yeah. And she does enter into a relationship with this woman whose name is Sienna. Mm-hmm. But obviously, first, having a relationship with a person of colour, with an Indigenous Australian, let alone with a woman, is not accepted in this yeah. town. Uh-huh. So without their knowledge, one of the drones outside of Christine's bedroom window catches this on camera. The footage is then shown to Christine's father and Christine and Sienna are both kicked out of the house. So Christine doesn't know where Sienna goes. All she knows that is she's now on the street with a credit card that doesn't work Mm -hmm. and a key card that does no longer get into her apartment. She's on the street. So she's running on the streets for days. She manages to escape the drones, escape the patrolling security vans, the security cars for days until she's ultimately caught and is taken to the gate out. Because when you when you don't abide by the rules, if you rebel in any way, if you do anything that is not the norm, you are exiled to okay. the outside. Yeah. Which That makes sense. Yes, which they say on the news that the outside is horrible. It's a wasteland. Oh, okay. It's full yeah. of savage people who have been kicked out of the town and are living in rags and causing chaos and mayhem. So this is instilling fear in the residents to not rebel. Yeah. Not that they even have anything to rebel against because they don't know what's actually happening. That's true. That's true. There's the power dynamic of like people above them being able to control what they can think about, what they can fear what they can hope for and stuff like that absolutely they don't even really have a sense of themselves actually because even they go to a restaurant they stand in front of sort of this register and it scans their face and from that scan it can tap into all the restaurants in that town and recognize what their usual or their most recent meal was or what meals their friends usually get that they're friends with on social media and it will automatically order for them. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Can you imagine that? Ooh, Technology. I guess it's... it's not impossible. Oh, God, no. This is already happening now. It is. Speculative and... fiction. Speculative fiction. My Lord, my Lord. And I do find that like, specifically the social media in that town is very... It very much mirrors us now. They're constantly putting on these parties, barbecues, social gatherings, not because they want connection, but they want to put the photos on the ground. Okay, yep. Yes. Christine is constantly looking at her phone, waiting for a new DM to pop up. And when there's no new notifications there, she has to try and hide her disappointment from the people around her. And we think this sounds horrible, but really, have we not seen this happen? Yes, I feel like we're already living it. It is a bit like that. Interesting. But Christine is leaving this. Not willingly, she is out of the gate, okay? She's yep. in this wasteland. So now that Christine is no longer in Safe Town, this is sort of really where the story starts cracking. 
So I don't want to spoil it too much, so I won't give too much detail into what happens next in the story, other than she finds Sienna and her ex-best friend, who'd been lost for years, who she believed to possibly be dead, in a sort of utopia, and it's Melbourne. Of course. Of course the the safe haven is Melbourne. Yes. Anyway, on the train she meets plenty of nice people who help her out, one woman even buys her a snack box, mm. a halal snack box, which respect. Can uh, you imagine? Yes. Can you imagine not having eaten anything but pigeons and rats for months and then getting a snack pack? Oh my god, the luxury! Best oh, day of your life. <laughs> I would ascend. What Christine notices about Melbourne is how different it is like it's called leafy the leafy suburbs because the streets and the houses are just covered in plants plants vines just anything to try and bring more oxygen into the air to combat climate change that'd be nice to live wouldn't it? i'd love to live there wouldn't it she's worried about getting the train but then she finds out that all of the public transport is free to get uh, the to get the cars off the road ah uh, ideal it just seems Mate. so simple doesn't it where there, know, where, right? oh. where there would have been cameras in Safe Town, there's bird feeders. The humans are one with nature. Oh, going back look to at the this land. utopia. Oh it, god, yeah. Exactly. Yes. It is utopia. Mm. There are people of all genders, all races, all coming together. Yes. It's she's like, wow, what is this place? They're growing their own food. They're providing all these free services. They're ending poverty. Oh, it sounds so Ooh. simple. All education is free. Ah, oh, oh, perfect. So she oh. can go get her master's, not have to worry. Perfect. And what's actually, more, my first, my yes. first thought, though, actually. What? Um, do we know anything about if there's Indigenous people, like, in, you know, included within society? Is this, like, what's the, because it's Melbourne, right? It's Australia. Yes. Yes. This is like Aboriginal land. Yes. What's, um, you said there was like a diversity of gender, race, ability, yep. stuff like that. But what's the relationship they have with Indigenous people on country? The Indigenous that- people are also very included and the country is very much respected and viewed as theirs. Okay. Okay. That's the side thought I had just in case. Interesting. Yeah. No. Just in yeah. Case. yeah. It is. And, um, there is a universal income, so ah. everyone gets a basic guaranteed income to prevent poverty, Ooh. starvation, homelessness. There's zero homelessness. Oh, perfect. Um, perfect. Queer people are celebrated. The diversity and the inclusivity is great, but also bare minimum. Okay, yes, I agree. Like, I agree. Exactly, exactly. But it is nice to see, though. It is it bloody is, lovely It is very to nice see. to see. The because it doesn't diverse representation, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't happen enough. You're right. Mm, mm. We're going to talk about the author, Claire G. Coleman. Yes. As yes. an Indigenous Noongar woman. Now, Claire is a queer Indigenous woman. She's a trans woman. She is very outspoken on social media about Indigenous and queer rights, and she really uses her platform to sort of drive this agenda and try and use her voice to better the world. Not yes, just yes. in her fiction and her nonfiction, but via the social platforms as well. And I was yeah. just wondering what your view on social media activism is. Uh, for me personally, I see social media activism as both beneficial and 
also detrimental depending on the audience and the person that's like you know posting stuff and stuff like that i'd say from from marginalized people from marginalized bodies um social media activism is more beneficial for us because we're able to reach out and we're able to connect nationally and globally to people within our communities and people that like are like us sort of thing and able to openly share and bring bring out conversations around like injustice to like different um like you know marginalized groups marginalized communities stuff like that yeah um but this this sort of like tool that marginalized people are able to use to you know liberate ourselves and other people um is sometimes co-opted by people that do have a lot of privilege yeah and it that co-opting of social media activism sort of thing where you see people just like like the Black Lives Matter sort of situation in 2020 or still going but people just, in 2020. people just sharing the one post without taking any sort of move to understand what it's about or yeah yeah it was just like okay you digital one post thing mm. um and actually it, it just did nothing it did absolutely nothing yeah. it just became like a a tool for the privilege to be seen or be viewed as progressive. Um, and it sort of like ties back into the whole, like how self image and like how perception on social media, like tie, like what um uh, Claire was writing about in the book about how yeah. the mum and the mum's friends are like always getting plastic surgery. They're always like changing their hair color and like really forced to internalize like Western beauty standards and like, forced to internalize just always being perceived yeah and like always being connected to social media this like the reality of like privileged people co-opting social media activism for like clout i guess for like a better yeah. word for clout yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting discussion it's a big topic yeah yeah um but i definitely say like people like uh Claire G. Coleman, uh Sandy O'Sullivan, and many, many other like queer indigenous figures and like scholars and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They they have like pretty big platforms for like yeah. people in those sort of like marginalized positions. Because unfortunately that's just like we are we aren't really granted those sort of audiences naturally because of like Western heteropatriarchy, stuff like that. We all we all know. Absolutely. Um yeah, but with their audience that they have, they're like major, major figures within social like social media activism and grassroots activism as well. Yeah. Thank you. Would you say that someone with perhaps a smaller following, do you think that their social media activism would be any less beneficial? Ooh. Um, I'd say definitely the the number of people you're reaching with your content mm-hmm. can change like the outcome of a sort of thing. Um, uh, but people say with like six hundred followers or like two hundred followers in comparison to like twenty thousand, they can still definitely make the difference. But like more of an interpersonal difference yeah. because like say if someone that you know, like went to high school with, you still follow them on Instagram, they're like very staunch about like indigenous liberation, queer liberation, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Um, and you're seeing that st- and you're like sort of seeing that stuff and going, oh, okay, I never like knew that. Oh, how, oh this yeah. is how I can help this sort of thing. It, they're making like the change of their small sort of like following yeah. on a more interpersonal micro community level. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like people like Claire G. Coleman, sort of like um, online activism, which yeah. is both like community and like a global audience, which does open them up to 
uh, open her up to um, more vitriol and like racial violence and stuff like yeah. that and queer violence. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Dylan. So there is a big interconnection between Claire's Indigenous and queer identities. Yeah. And whilst we don't get that with her main character, because Christine is is an Indigenous, we do get it with Sienna in a very small way, but we do see a difference in the way that Christine and Sienna, like their path throughout the novel. It's very unsure whether Sienna's okay after being removed from that town. Her position yeah. is much more unclear than Christine's, despite them both being queer women, despite them both being of similar ages. So what do you think about that sort of relationship between those two identities? Yeah, I'd say I'd say Indigenous queerness because of like the colonial because of colonial violence and like colonial erasure of or like Indigenous people's culture and like knowledge. We haven't been able to fully reconnect or like and uncover queerness or Western definitions of queerness within our own communities from before colonization. Um, that will mainly because the definition of queer within a colonial Western context I cannot like translate to indigenous definitions okay. of like, you know, queerness and stuff like that. Cause like even yeah. using the word queer doesn't encapsulate the nuance and complexity of indigenous language and culture and relationality and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I'd say uh, indigenous queerness, like today, it's sort of like many indigenous queer, like queer and trans people were using colonial terms to define our identities and define ourselves while also still being connected to community and culture. Would you say then that then sort of finding that ability to express yourself within your own culture without having to use these colonised terms and ideas, do you think that's something that you're hoping for in the future because this is sort of a futuristic novel and we're looking at the future of Indigenous people and while Claire G. Coleman's isn't exactly positive it it might be in the end but it's not exactly a positive representation of the future what would you say your hopes for the future of australia and your community would be oh yeah i definitely say like in a in a utopia in a truly liberated sort of like space there wouldn't have to be the need to like come out i don't like using the term coming out but like you wouldn't have to come out because queerness wouldn't be othered and like non-heterosexuality and like all that stuff wouldn't be othered in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, just in in that utopia, we'd be fully connected to our communities. We'd be reconnected to country and all that because our sort of homophobia and like queerphobia and stuff wouldn't be ingrained into our communities because of the colonial sort of like, because of colonial violence. So ultimately that'll like Indigenous queer liberation would enca- or like would be a major step towards liberation from like capitalism from yeah. patriarchy stuff like that sort of um sort of the idea like when you uplift the most marginalized people it brings everyone up sort of thing i love that um so yeah i that's that's sort of like what i see as the goal and do you see it as a as a possible goal yes i do do? I do. Probably not in my lifetime okay. or in our lifetime, but we can sure as hell do the best we can to make that a reality. 
bloody oath. Yeah, bloody oath. Like, what wants to get rid of like humanity you know, has to get there. <laughs> yes, yes, I know we can, but ah, can. capitalism got us good. It, well, she got us. Yeah, she got us. Goddamn. In that chokehold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my that's my thoughts on that. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Dylan. So Claire G. Coleman is an Indigenous woman. I have read other novels in my degree and outside my degree that are Indigenous fiction, such as The Secret River by Kate Grenville. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have no. So Kate Grenville is not an Indigenous woman. There are also other Indigenous novels not written by Indigenous people. And do you think that this is wrong? I'll give you an example. So Grenville's book in particular is told from the perspective of the colonizer when colonization happened and she says that it is an authentic view because it is based on family history because her great great grandfather it's that's who the main character is based off but a lot of people have issues with that novel and similar novels and it certainly was contested in the class that I studied that novel for because some of the depictions of the relationships between the settlers and the native people of the land were just horrific and unnecessary and when it's told from the perspective of a non-Indigenous person, how do you feel about that? Who do you think can tell Indigenous stories? Oh, I think... Mainly Indigenous people can tell Indigenous stories, but also yes. um, in the context of like who their language group is, who their community is, stuff like that. But only non-Indigenous people can speak on these things or speak on these like sort of stories if they have, if they well and truly have enough knowledge about like culture, stories, community, stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, and so, like from what I understood of this sort of um, book that you were talking about just then, sort of a non-Indigenous author sort of like telling a story about how you know the the violence of colonialism and like of like that sort of stuff yeah what's what's it what's it trying to do what's its purpose of retelling this sort of thing is it like the literary sort of as a literary technique sort of thing is that trying to speak on the colonial violence like on and on and on sort of thing like Mm -hmm. keep retelling it because at this point we all know what happened. We all know the the effects of it, of the yeah, of that violence. And so what is retelling that sort of story from a colonial perspective doesn't isn't really subversive at all. It's just talking about violence again. Yeah. Whereas as I sort of see it as like there's so many other avenues you could have gone down. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, you could go down that sort of interweaves the indigenous perspective, indigenous life and experience. I'm just personally against non-indigenous people rehashing colonial violence yeah. as a um well not really a crutch, but like you know what I you know what I mean? I don't know the yeah, word for that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I, my thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you for that insight. I think that's why I found it so refreshing that Coleman's novel wasn't rooted in the past, that it was mm a speculative fiction novel rather than a historical novel like so many of these novels are it's not dwelling on that it's not re-exploring that for unnecessary reasons it's looking Mm -hmm. towards the future and trying to find a way to get better and overcome that yeah exactly which is yeah from what you've told me about um enclave yeah from what you told me about that i'm i mean i bloody love clergy coleman um as a person and like her work as well um yeah. but actually it's, it's sort of like um comes back to a um 
sort of like a scholarly or academic term that um, was coined in the US. It's called um, Indigenous Futurism. Yeah. Or like the term is Futurism. Um, and it's sort of like we're sort of a re- reimagining of our futures that we've like made ourselves sort of thing. So it's like a um, like imagining a utopia for us, yeah. but it's made from our sort of perspectives. It's from our view of like as Indigenous people. A lot of like that you'll see like Indigenous, like Indigenous superheroes or like Indigenous like fictions that are um, talking about like true liberation and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I butcher that explanation, but it's sort of like imagining a future where Indigenous people are truly liberated and truly like included and able to thrive in the future i've noticed a lot of indigenous like authors and scholars mm-hmm. uh implore that sort of uh implore that sort of reimagining of our futures within their works but yeah they like and the different mediums that like different indigenous authors use to do that it's like either through creative writing through scholarly works through mm-hmm. even like different genres and themes and like techniques all that sort of stuff um all conveys a yeah, conveys a future that sort of everyone is liberated and is free from the confines of like colonial violence and like capitalism uh-huh. and all that sort yeah. of stuff. But yeah, that's sort of like a very general explanation of futurism. There's oh, so much thank more. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I just thought it, like it was relevant to this sort of discussion. Absolutely. I can feel my brain expanding. <laughs> <laughs> can Big I ask? Brain moment, yes. Yeah. Can I ask if Enclave had been written? By someone else, if it had been written by a non-Indigenous Australian, do you think it would lose its impact a little? Um, I think it would, yes. Yeah. Uh, me personally, uh, I don't speak for every Indigenous person, but I personally think it would because sort of Claire's work or Claire's perspective and experience is tied in with her work. And it was written by a non-Indigenous person. I feel it'd be disingenuous even Mm -hmm. if it was like the exact same wording that like Claire used and stuff like that or like the exact same format all that stuff yeah 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 I feel like it'd be disingenuous I I think I have one more question for you that has kind of been on my mind the whole time I've been studying this novel and I'm really interested to see what you'll think about it so a lot of discourse surrounding this particular novel has drawn similarities between it and Margaret Atwood's the Handmaid's Tale. Okay. Yep. I know. You, I already know that you haven't read it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I have not have read you, it. <laughs> have you seen the show, of or have you heard about what it's about? The premise. Controversially, no. Okay. Okay. So basically, it's instead of Australia, it's set in America, and it is also a gated community that is holding on to these Christian conservative values, and no one inside the community knows what's really happening on the outside. People are held there against their will. They have no access to outside media and it's very misogynistic. There's not so much of a focus on race or Indigenous people. It's more about there is a fertility crisis Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so each wealthy family in this gated community is allocated a handmaid, which is a woman that the husband of the family, the commander, sleeps with in order to produce a child because their wives are barren. Okay, yeah. So they sleep with this handmaid against her will in order to produce a child that they will then raise with their wife while the handmaid is passed on to another family. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are making comparisons between the gated community in 
Coleman's novel and in the gator community, which shows a Western struggle. Do you think that this is harmful, this sort of comparison? I would say, I'd say yes. Mm -hmm. I haven't read either, either book, to be (laughs) honest. But based on these sort of premises, I'd say yes, because um, Handmaid's Tale (laughs) focuses on white white women in particular yeah and i'd say white misogyny against white women permeates differently in comparison mm-hmm. to indigenous black um and women of color and stuff like that and so i say making that sort of comparison between the two is you can't really do that yeah because of just the lived realities of indigenous women and how white women have played into the into the violence into violence against indigenous women in particular and yeah. like indigenous peoples what, what are your what are your sort of thoughts on I that comparison? in doing my research and seeing that comparison made so many times I was put off by it and mm. that's why I brought it up to you because I was just wondering where do we draw the line and how would an indigenous person feel reading that how would Claire feel reading that mm. comparison yeah true true and comparing yeah. Indigenous struggles to Western struggles, which they are, cannot be compared at all in any way. Yeah, yeah, mainly because one of them is a result of the West. Yes. So I don't endorse colonialism personally, um, but yeah, I there's definitely people out there that do know this sort. I do have an answer to this sort of question. Yeah. Um, I just don't read enough, but <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I just think it's sort of a problematic sort of comparison to make between yeah, Age Tale. <laughs> And um, enclave. If people listening to this podcast were reading Indigenous fiction or wanted to know more about it and they wanted somewhere to turn to for reliable information, where would you suggest they turn? Are there any activists that you particularly like? Oh, yes. Yes, I'd say first, following social media is a positive thing in this case. Following Indigenous scholars and activists and, like, figures on like Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. That's really beneficial to just be able to like hear perspectives and see perspectives that you're like, I guess you're not really used to sort of thing. Yeah. And so like making sure that um, when you're engaging with social media, you're sort of always like not confronted for lack of a better word, like not that, but you're always seeing Indigenous perspectives and always seeing that sort of stuff. So I'd say like Claire G. Coleman, um, mm-hmm. Sandy O'Sullivan, Anita Heiss, Many, many others that I just can't think of right now. But there's so many Indigenous, like, people out there, in Australia in particular, and, you know, globally, but in this context. Yeah, worldwide, Mr. Worldwide. (laughs) Um, There's there's so many, like, so many people on social media that you can follow that are always um, posting stuff, always sharing stuff that's Mm -hmm. beneficial for us to know and, like, beneficial for us to contribute to, like, community engagement community assistance protests stuff like that information so i say that's a good place to start it's like following indigenous like peoples on social media and i'm i'm biased i am a researcher at heart i (laughs) I am a researcher i work as an academic but reading academic works did by indigenous people really did cement my knowledge on community and how indigenous peoples have been framed and like placed within the colonial sort of like environment the colonial society and stuff but yeah I know I I, reading academia academic articles is very like draining sometimes because you know but if you have access yeah it's a great source 
exactly if you have access and the time and the energy and mm -hmm. the like the privilege to be able to um read like academic texts yeah then yes i fully recommend that by indigenous uh scholars and stuff well thank you so much Dylan, for talking to us today of course of course thank you very much for inviting me here Jasmine. it's always <laughs> a pleasure talking was, to you it was such a pleasure and thank you everyone for listening and if you aren't in public right now while listening and you're i don't know at home Please, everyone, let's have a, a round of applause for Dylan because they are a beautiful human being and they have made us all better people by bettering us with their knowledge today. So oh, thank, thank you. you. Oh. Thank, thank you, everyone, for listening. And this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse and we hope you all enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Bye.